cue motivational music. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Dean and I'm a designer on a quest. A quest to further understand the creative industry and learn as much as this noggin will hold. Join me as I share my discoveries and tap into the minds of some of the most well-respected creatives in the world. This is my creative therapy. Hello and welcome to episode 10. Today I'm joined by Airbnb's creative strategist, Elliot Garcia Weisberg. And in this episode, we talk about his journey throughout his career, his unexpected meeting with Apple's product designer, now chief design officer, Johnny Ive, how digital design, which is a little rough around the edges, actually works well for some content creators, you know, like Gary Vee, Joe Rogan, those types of guys. We also talk about his experience working alongside the co-founder of Airbnb and loads more. How's things anyway, man? Uh, Great. You know, things are good. It's Friday and I, you know, I'm halfway through the day here, so I couldn't be any better right now. I uh, have a one-year-old, actually he's about 14 months old now. And so it really just changes your whole perception of the week. I feel like it it used to be like, oh, Friday is going to be the weekend. Now it's like Friday and tomorrow's still going to be work because you're, (laughs) you know, he's just constantly keeping us busy, but I've... I love him so much. I can't wait to, you know, wrap up here and, and go hang out with my son. Nice, man. So you, you haven't got that Friday feeling as such, but you're at your, you're raring for the weekend. It's a different Friday feeling. I find myself excited for Mondays in a weird way because I get to interact with adults and have conversations about real things, not just like the what the cow says and what color <laughs> the chicken is. But those are fun conversations too. Right, that's awesome. So whereabouts are you in the in the world right now? So I'm in San Francisco, California. Um, We are, if you're familiar with San Francisco, we're in a neighborhood called SOMA, which stands for South of Markets, kind of a former like industrial district that's having a, I don't want to say renaissance, it's still kind of a weird part of the city, but a lot of companies are buying uh, bigger buildings here and and making it kind of their their HQ. So we're in a, a little nook with Pinterest is here. There's a self-driving car startup that's kind of getting pretty big out here. Uh, Zynga, former gaming empire, now a little bit smaller, is right around the corner. So it's a cool little tech hub. So that that sounds like the place to be for all things, yeah, tech and all things except like walking to a good restaurant. There's not a lot of that around here, but they take good care of us here, and and I haven't really left the building in an embarrassingly long time. So it's it's not bad. That's awesome. Um, I was speaking to someone the other week and they were telling me about San Francisco and what it was like there. And I was a little bit embarrassed to tell them where, where I'm from. But um, I'm from the southwest of England. Okay. And it's, it's, it's pretty basic. You know, the, the weather's pretty standard. It's kind of, it's fairly small. It's a fairly small area. But uh, I, w- I would love to head out to San Francisco. It's definitely on my bucket list. Sure. It's, a, it's one of those cities that, it has so much to offer and it just no matter what you're looking for if you're somebody who's looking for architecture there's these victorian homes here that were built around 1890 1910 that are just uh, just jaw dropping and then there's uh the la- natural landscape you know the city's full of hills and it's surrounded by the ocean and it just has you know whether you're a nature lover or a food lover or there's so many dogs if you're a dog lover it's a great city to visit it's <laughs> such a, a cool place to be and uh, i'm i'm just really lucky that i ended up here how long have you been in san francisco then so i have been out here since 2009 so about 10 years um 
my wife is born and raised in San Francisco and we met in college. So when we graduated, it was this question of, do we stay in Pennsylvania where I'm from, or do we go out to California? Either way, we were going to live with our parents until we found jobs and made it work. And we just decided San Francisco seemed like a smarter destination for us and been out here ever since. I, I would love to live in the States. That's definitely one of my dreams. I feel it's everyone's dream in, in the uh, in the UK is to move to America and live that American dream and really make it happen and, and go for it. You know, it's the land of opportunity. That's. And I'm glad to hear that. I mean, you know, just the past couple of years since uh, the last election have been tough to be an American. When you talk abroad, I mean, Politically, there's a lot going on in a lot of places right now. And, you know, I, I don't need to get deep into politics, but just radical politics, I feel like are never good. And so we are in this big surge of radical, a radical political movement right now. And it's not one that I am a big fan of. That'll be like the end of my political contribution to this conversation. But I do have this weird awareness now when I travel. I feel like everybody looks at you and is laughing a little bit and just or in shock of what's happening. And um, I'm I'm glad that there's still this perception of the states being a place for creative opportunity and personal and still political freedom. I mean, it's not horrible. You know, I, I don't feel the sense of like, uh, impending doom every day, but m many days I do. So when's the next general election then? Uh, how, how often does that happen? 2020. So it's every four years. Uh, and, and the last one was 2016. So they'll start to do the big, you know, the big push for their candidacy. And they haven't announced even if Trump is going to run again. Uh, prob I mean, probably, I'm guessing, I think the fear is he'll claim that the election is rigged and, you know, who, who knows, but they start that big push for their campaign usually this year towards the end of the year. Yeah. Uh, the, the UK is a bit of a, a bit of a shit storm at the minute. There's a, there's a lot, there's a lot going on as well. To be fair, I'm not, I'm not fully clued up on politics. I'm not exactly 100% sure what's going on. I'm just smiling and nodding and Good. agreeing. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like, there's, it's kind of a negative way to look at it, but it's like, what's the what's the kind of the point in having an opinion when your opinion isn't valued and it's not listened to and it you know it doesn't get acted upon and it's just like why am I even bothering? So it's just I, you I know, don't know it's really hard because some people look at that and they're like, well, you're just you're being apathetic, and I feel like there's also this element of even if you try to get engaged, you don't know what's true anymore, and I don't mean that from this place of like pure, I don't know, tinfoil hat, like conspiracy theory. I mean, like you look at the news and you read something and it's not a firsthand account of yours. So it's been distilled and probably, you know, that game of telephone has been played a few times. And unless you are somebody who can dedicate, you know, hours out of your day to looking at that perspective from a handful of different news sources, from trying to get as close as possible, it's really hard to form an opinion that you can act on. And when people do that and they see messages on Facebook or, you know, whether it's a bot or a friend sharing a, an opinion and they become more polarized from that, it's scary. And so I'm really hyper aware of that. And that, I think, is why I'm kind of paralyzed when it comes to a lot of political things. I just am like, well, I've never met them. I don't know them. The media makes them seem horrible, but they have, they're a human being. So nobody – I don't think that any of us are like these – you know, TV villains or movie villains where we're just like, I'm, I'm bad. I'm, I only want to destroy. 
everybody thinks they're doing good. And I, I, I think that they think they're doing good. And, you know, I think if you were to have dinner with them, you'd find something redeeming. Doesn't mean their acts are worthwhile or not, but it makes it hard to, um, to have a strong political opinion when you don't trust things like that. I, I often, I'm getting more and more letters through the door saying, make sure you vote next, make sure you vote next, make sure you vote next. It, it, it's so pushy. Yeah. And I, I think they're sort of, they're recognizing that people don't have enough trust in the system anymore. And they're sort of losing faith in, you know, everything. And they're just trying to be a bit pushy. I could, I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> I really could. Even, even though I know nothing about politics, I, I kind of feel like I have a strong opinion about it. Yeah. But not so much like, oh, you should vote for this party because they do this. I just think there's there's so much that... Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, there's no point getting too involved because, you know, you're going to be happy with some things, you're going to be unhappy with others. I, I, I think what you just said makes a lot of sense. It's like in a... An opinion you can learn in a couple of hours, but a perspective that takes years to gain. And so it sounds like you have a political perspective, but you're still not entirely sure of your political opinions. And I think that's healthy and, and normal. And I'd probably say I'm the exact same. Yeah, but um, yeah, man, let's let's get into it. I'm recording now. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> sure. So I was going to ask I... you, like, is this the podcast? Because like we can. I mean, it can yeah, be man. whatever. I mean, it, I, I it records sort of automatically as soon as you get uh, connected. Keep if, it. if that's cool, anyway. I, that's awesome. I'm 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 a super fan of not just your work, but the 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 places that you've worked at and stuff. And I was just wondering if you could maybe tell us a bit about how you got into the industry and where you started. I, I sure. see that you studied at uh, Vasa College. Yes. Oh, Vasa College. I did. Yeah. yeah. Let me give you the whole rundown. I alluded to this earlier. I grew up in the East Coast of the States in a little town called Allentown, Pennsylvania. If you're a fan of Billy Joel, there's a Billy Joel song about it. That's about its biggest claim to fame. I think I've heard of it. It's yeah. a suburb of Philadelphia. Um, my dad owned a carpet store and, uh, you know, as, as exciting as the world of floor covering, as revolutionary as that may seem, my dad was the most creative and incredible guy. Um, he was definitely my first creative mentor, still is my hero. And I think it all stemmed from the fact that he used to make all of his own commercials. So, wow. uh, he was kind of a local celebrity in our very small town. And these commercials weren't just like, look at all of our carpet. It comes in red and blue. It was like him, uh, emerging, uh, miniaturized, emerging out of the carpet and talking about its stain resistance or him like getting into this car of the future and flying into space. Or there was a whole commercial with Muppets. I mean, he, <laughs> he, uh, he was really a, a creative dude who found this outlet despite being in a bit of a mundane, I, I guess I shouldn't say that if he listens to this, but in a little bit of a less creative industry. And so I, always grew up with a camera in my hands would steal my dad's like little VHS camera when we would go to Disneyland and make my own really weird films. Uh, and that kind of, you know, it was at a time where YouTube wasn't around yet. And so we were recording onto, you know, DV and editing, like, I don't even know what software we were using at the time, maybe Vegas or some, something that I probably stole and they wouldn't go anywhere, but I was really, really proud of them. Uh, and, when I went to college, I just never really considered film. Um, I was looking for a liberal arts school. I wanted to study economics and philosophy. And so Vassar, um, 
if you're familiar, it's a small school in Poughkeepsie, New York. It's about an hour and a half train ride on the Metro North from the city, which was huge for me. Like I love New York City. I like being able to get there, but I didn't really like the vibe of like spending all my time there. So Vassar's in the Hudson Valley, just gorgeous school. And I had a great freshman year. I was going to declare a major in econ and probably take over the carpet store. And sophomore year, I got really just kind of burned out. Um, I don't know if it was passion or what it was. I just, I wasn't feeling it. I, I almost dropped out. And um, at the time I was also just, you know, I was not dating. I mean, it was college. So I was hanging out a lot with uh, this, this woman, her name was Jill. And she convinced me to, or encouraged me to uh, take a film class that she was in. And uh, I was pretty ignorant. Like I didn't know if they offered a film major. I knew they had a film building. I just was kind of so closed off to it. And when I realized that, you know, you could study film, I don't know, is it, I don't know if it's naive to say that, but I didn't know you could study it and people were taken as seriously as philosophy. Like here's, you know, someone studying like documentary film and the Maisel's brothers in one room. And then in another building, they're studying like Aristotle and Socrates and mm -hmm. they, they're holding them to the same, uh, you know, creative standards. I think that that's, that was new to me. And so I fell in love with that. I think that uh, that was a big turning point for me. Maybe a month later, I declared a film major. And all of a sudden, I was doing what I absolutely love to do every day. And that was studying film theory uh, that led into film production, both documentary and narrative. And um, produced a couple films at school. It was incredible. Had an opportunity to work with some amazing and very talented people who have now gone on to have careers down in Hollywood and in New York. Wow. And then I graduated in 2009, um, which was just an economic clusterfuck in the United States. <laughs> Am I able to say that on this show? Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. You just did. <laughs> it was a really it was a really rough time to graduate. Um, there weren't very many jobs. There was a housing crisis happening. And so again, earlier I alluded to this moment in time where no matter what decision I made, I was going to end up living with my parents or uh, my, at the time, girlfriend's parents. Same girl, by the way, that convinced me to study film. We stayed together in school and she was from San Francisco. So we were like, let's go there. That seems like the place to go. Um, this is a really long roundabout way of getting to my first kind of career pillar. Uh, no, this is awesome. <laughs> this is this is great. And you know, as, as you're talking, I... I'm almost picturing like a film. You could definitely make a film from this. <laughs> you know, like I might even I might even just take this snippet, put some inspirational music over it, and um, make a trailer from it. Hey, it I'll, sounds great. I'll Honest sell to God, those it's... rights to you. That's fine. Um, <laughs> sounds good. I Carry think, on. <laughs> uh, so we we drove across the country, um, which was incredible. I feel like we spent about three weeks uh, slowly driving from Pennsylvania out to San Francisco. We took the northern route through states that I, you know, had only ever seen on a map in geography class, like South Dakota, which are interesting. Each one has its own distinct type of beauty. There's this national park in South Dakota called the Badlands, and it's just gorgeous. And what was really interesting was I was seeing these sets and settings for films that I'd watched my whole life. And it was like in the moment, like physically there, there's this scene in Forrest Gump the scene where he's running and running and running and finally stops running. And, you know, he's got this big beard and everybody else stops like 20 yards behind him. And he's like, I forget the exact line, but he just decides that he's done. 
and we went there like we were there i have a picture of me on that road jumping wow. in the air and so we kind of lived this like cinematic dream driving across the country um and then we lived in her parents back room uh she has a younger brother and sister so i would be woken up every day about six they ran a summer camp uh, or their the summer camp met at their house so we were trying very hard to get out of there um i was interviewing at like coffee shops and restaurants and uh finally i got a job at apple the apple store apple retail store and so that is in downtown san francisco um it's one of their flagship stores which means not only was it very big but they did a lot more than just sell computers they had a theater upstairs and they um, would have seminars and workshops. That's something that they've brought to a lot of the small stores now. But back then, it was one of the only places you could go to learn, uh, like Final Cut for free from an Apple certified, you know, uh, creative. I think they called them. So, started in sales. It was pretty easy. I'd worked at the carpet store, so I could sell Apple Care like nobody's business. Uh, nice. <laughs> but I didn't really, you know, again, I had studied film and I was like, not really using it. I wasn't making a ton of money and wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel like a career. Um, but one day the guy who did the theater workshops, um, I think he was sick and they needed somebody to come in and teach Final Cut Pro for about two hours. And I had done some theater stuff in high school and was like, I'll try it. I know Final Cut. And I did this workshop, and um, honestly, it it was a really big hit. I mean, I felt like I did a good job. The audience, they all have to give, Apple does this like scorecard afterwards. They email you. They say, how was Elliot? How was the workshop? Ah, okay. And so they, I did well. I, I scored highly. And next thing I knew, I was teaching seven to eight of those workshops a day. So like eight or nine hours wow. up there. And it transitioned from teaching them to writing them. And I would say the highlight of my career, I was there for the launch of iPhone 3GS, for iPhone 4, and for the iPad. And the day that the iPad launched, they don't let anybody touch it, right? Until about one in the morning, the whole store is transformed. And I finally, I get there like super early, see an iPad, and I have to deliver a workshop called Getting Started with iPad. I hadn't touched one, you know? I'm, they're intuitive, <laughs> but like, it was a pretty scary thing. And not only that, you know, Steve was alive at the time still, and um, he could have come to the store at any minute. He'd come, he'd just kind of pop oh. in randomly, which was terrifying. You weren't allowed to talk oh. to him. You had to just treat him like a, a customer. So wow. I'm nine in the morning, I think, maybe 10. The store opens, and one of the very first workshops is me teaching, getting started with iPad. And there in the front row of this workshop isn't Steve, but is Johnny Ive. And uh, is not the product designer, the product designer, the guy who is in every single video, just pontificating yeah. about the simplicity and the beauty. And, and I'm, I am freaking out, not just because I look up to him, but because if I get anything wrong, like here's the guy that <laughs> made it. And, uh, wow. it was a, it was a whirlwind. It was absolute insanity. And afterwards he came up and shook my hand and told me that I did a great job. And that was the awesome. beginning of me like formally doing that for, for a little while. And it was, uh, that was probably, you know, I've done a lot. That was 10 years ago, but that's one of the highlights of my, of my career. It's really small and it's really personal. You know, no one really saw that. Nobody else was impacted by that. But for me, it gave me the confidence and the boost that I needed to, 
to really trust and believe in myself for what I was doing. And that was huge. That's awesome, man. I mean, yeah, just getting the, you know, the thumbs up from a guy like that. Sure. Is, is, is awesome. I, I can't imagine how you were feeling at the time, like pressure and, you know, you, you want to please him, but at the same time, you're just like, you're watching what you say and watching what you do. Yeah, man, fair play. That that must have took some, you, some doing. Yeah. You wanted to forget he was there, but you couldn't forget because, I mean, he, he, someone, it's like when a celebrity walks in the room and all of a sudden, mm. uh, this might have happened to me three or four times in life. Airbnb does, does, you know, every now and then has somebody come in for an office tour or we're partnering with somebody. And, uh, I, I was in the same room as Lady Gaga. And, you know, I at the time, I was not a huge Lady Gaga fan. I knew all of her music. Uh, but my heart was just, you know, thumping. Like, you're, you, when you get a chance to open your mouth, the stupidest things come out. Just because you're, <laughs> you're so hyper aware. Uh, and I'm glad that it wasn't now because I've become a really big Lady Gaga fan. I mean, she's she's super talented and she's a great actress and her voice is just phenomenal and if i met her now i would have been way more nervous than than back then but it was that there was that dynamic with johnny it was like i remember you know feeling my heartbeat in like parts of my body that i've never felt my heartbeat before you know wow uh so i i would say from there you know apple retail was kind of this weird beast where people would move occasionally to corporate to Cupertino and we're physically close enough that I thought I had a chance at doing that. And, uh, there was a couple of opportunities to design Marcom marketing communications content for, uh, stores that would be the flagships. So my presentations were going out to, you know, seven or eight other stores that had theaters, but, uh, it was never really formalized to the point where, you know, I was I had a Cupertino badge and I was down there and working in the cool office and one infinite loop. Uh, and that was kind of bumming me out because I was doing a lot of that work, but I wasn't really getting some of the other benefits of like a full-time salary. And, you know, there's, there's still a big division between Apple store and Apple corporate. And, uh, one day I was introduced to this, this really interesting creative dude, uh, named Troy Young. It was through a, a mutual friend and, this was, um, again, kind of this time at Apple where I was open to other opportunities, but I wasn't really ready to jump yet. Troy, uh, <laughs> he was somebody who in first conversation, you're just like captivated. It's his voice. It's his persona. It's his way of thinking about the world. You kind of hang on every word he says. And at the time, he was working at this company, uh, I think it was the president, called Video Egg. Video Egg was a company that um, pioneered everybody's favorite thing, video pre-roll ads, which are the, the pop-ups that show up before you watch a video on YouTube. So you have Troy Young to thank for that. Um, nice. He was merging that company with this blogging platform called Six Apart. And Six Apart is the company that created TypePad, which was a very, very early place for people to blog and have journals and just you know host their own sites, whether they were just for passion, professional, whatever. And the goal was to form a modern media company, so a place where advertisers and influencers could connect and create content that was mutually beneficial. Sounded pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. And I joined that company on day one. Um, I joined as a video producer, and I worked directly with Troy. In the beginning, it was 
<laughs> I was like going to parties and just filming and making things to show how cool a hip of a company we were. And uh, I was on our marketing team. So I had a couple of interesting like behind the scenes films that I was able to make. It was the first time I was really utilizing, you know, my chops in editing and cinematography and storytelling. But it wasn't until about a year in that they started to take video very seriously. Um, but, uh, we used to have these internal all hands meetings there and we came up with this idea to film a short about just random employees. We would just kind of select an employee and partner with them for a day to make a mini documentary when we called the series passions. And, um, at the first one that I made, it followed this woman, Janine, who was just a dog lover. And it, when I say that, I mean, it, it's not like she like had a dog that she liked everything in her world was dogs like you go in her house like her bed sheets her shower curtain she has dog tattoos she is like a dog obsessed in wow. a in a healthy way uh yeah yeah we made this film and the way that she talked about dogs and how you know she was never going to have kids but how a dog was like this interesting proxy and i don't know it, it made some people cry it was the first thing i made really that had that impact on me and, and some others and it planted this seed for i guess a couple folks in the sales team that like we could we could sell this we could sell this and partner someone like janine with a brand uh like iams which is a pet food company in the states and find this mutual place and so i started to um work on a team that was creating what we called advertorial content and this is You've probably read a magazine where you're, you know, you're skimming through Wired and you turn a page and on black on black text at the top, it says advertisement and the layout <laughs> doesn't really look as good and you read it and you get halfway through and you're like, well, this is a waste of my time. This is for Tide Pods or something. Absolutely. We were making the video equivalent of that. Okay. Um, okay. I'm with that. And now I, I tried to put a lot of soul into it. I did that for about a year and a half. I loved it. Uh, but after doing that, we did it for Intel and Tom's Miracle Grow and, you know, brands big and small. I did feel a little bit like I was kind of selling my soul, um, which I'm probably being a little too much of a diva when I say that, you know, advertising, there's good and bad advertising and say media and what they were trying to do falls definitely on the spectrum of good advertising. They were really trying to make content that people cared about. But again, I just in this place where I wanted to do a little bit more. Um, so I decided to start my own company where I was able to be a little bit more selective around clients. A lot of our stuff was, was similar. So a lot of, um, a lot of short form video, three to five minutes that was personality driven and connected to a brand. Uh, but I also, I did a lot of work for nonprofits and just told stories that I thought were important to tell. And this was, this was the fucking perfect time to do this. I mean, this is a 2012, like digital SLRs are just getting to be affordable editing software. Like final cut was on the app store for two 99. You could make a film that looked like it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and you made it for nothing. I mean, if you owned your own camera and you bought or stole editing software, your cost of production, if you know how to harness natural light and you know how to shoot it's next to nothing. And so we were making, uh, I, I had a, a business partner at the time and together we were just making these films for brands large and small. And I'm not going to say we were raking it in. Like I didn't really know how to sell at that time, but you know, we would sell a campaign and we would bring some people on to help. But 
it was like it was so much fun and it it was didn't feel like a job but i was making enough to get by and it's really just this point in time that we're at i mean we're still there it's just more people know now you know you had these brands and they were used to spending so much money and getting something back that looked mediocre and now they're spending like less money and getting something back that looked like a film. I think it's like the revolution of shooting at 24 frames per second. And again, like, like the ability to put that on your website and have it front and center and full screen. That was so new to these companies that were used to buying television spots. And I'm yeah, just, yeah. I'm so lucky to have been born and graduate and like come into my element at this exact moment in time. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. And it, it, it's awesome that you found it at the right time as well. And you grabbed that opportunity and you recognized it and you ran with it because uh, I, th I think that's what a lot of decent business minded people do. You know, it, you sort of, you can see it at the minute. It's um, the, I don't want to say the industry is sort of diluted, but it, the, uh, the chance to grab that opportunity isn't as good as it was back then. And I mean, it's, it's so disruptive to the to the traditional sort of industry like uh cinematography or or for film and stuff for this new wave of technology to come along and make it easy for everyone you know it's it's kind of flipped the industry on its head a little bit and it's made these guys who have been in the industry for 20 plus years sort of start scratch their start scratching their head and think oh shit we need to start doing things a little bit differently around here you know these things are changing where do you go with the times a little bit absolutely i i feel like the opportunities now are are still there, but you have to look for them in different ways. And I'm I'm always trying to think about what is what's the next window like that. So you know, now that you have an incredibly powerful camera in your pocket all the time on your iPhone, that opportunity to like impress people with with quick film is changing. So you look at what other mediums, who, what other storytellers are just coming into their element. And what brands are, are still kind of afraid to dip their toes in that water. And I look at things like Twitch and game streaming and people like Ninja who are making a million dollars uh, doing these things. And, you know, I, I was just watching a Ninja stream last night and and he's got ads now for like Red Bull and Uber and and brands that are finally starting to engage. And it's it reminded yeah. me so much of the early days at Video Egg, these horrible pop-up ads that are just doing nothing but destroying your experience. And so I do see opportunities there to to change that and to, to again, find this nice balance of personality and advertising that, that's kind of a win-win. Um, and that's just one area. I mean, I thought for a long time, like VR was another area where there's a lot of potential because the means of creating VR seems so impossible. I mean, when you think about putting on a headset, it's just a whole other world uh, of, of technical challenges. But then, you know, Final Cut, now you can edit in 360, same thing in Premiere. Uh, there's a lot of cameras and, and a lot of plugins for things like After Effects that will allow you to edit in 360 and, and do really powerful creative work. So I think there's different frontiers, but you're totally right. I mean, the, the film thing is... YouTube is too big to think that that's a, a new thing for brands anymore. They're finally figuring it out and and figuring it out in in ways that I never even thought of. So people have way surpassed my my uh, my conceptual ability. Yeah, totally, man. I, I'm the same. I'm always looking for sort of opportunities and sort of gaps and 
and it, I guess it's about yeah, like I said, trying to catch it at the right time. And I remember I was saying this to a guy in another podcast about um, I was looking at meme pages years ago when they first started coming out, and I knew I wanted to grow an Instagram channel, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I didn't know why I wanted to do it. And I thought, I th well, I think I was curious more than anything because I sort of work in social media and create content for it. So I wanted to see how easy it was or how difficult it was to grow that channel and what you needed to do to, to stay current and reach the right people and tailor content differently for different channels and such. And yeah, I, th I think I was, um, I, I think I wanted that journey. And so, yeah, I started looking at meme pages, but at the time I was kind of like, oh, I can't be asked. There's so many out there. The the market the market's saturated as hell. There's no way that you're gonna get you're gonna get anywhere because you know, fuck Jerry was on the scene and he was he was posting God knows how much. And um, so I just I just give up. And then about uh, and this was about three years ago maybe. And now it's the, uh, yeah, I was speaking to a friend the other week and we were saying that if if we'd stuck with it. And if we had, you know, were persistent and consistent with our content, we we could have a decent following. Whether we were doing it for the right reasons or whether I wanted it to do it for the right reasons is a totally different question. But um, just just out of curiosity to see whether it, it would grow. But yeah, I, th I think there's opportunities opening up all the time. I think podcasts is 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 huge, to be honest. Um, yeah, there's yeah. there's um, a podcast workshop that I taught at Apple. 2010 wow. maybe because it was a garage band thing and they've been pushing it a long time i mean when you open up garage band one of the first templates that you can choose from is a podcast and at the time no one really knew what to do with that how to use it and the top 10 podcasts back then i think you know this american life was always up there and radio lab and these very heavily produced you know there's there's a whole team behind them they're basically uh, auditory films right there's a ton yeah. of production value but the podcasts that i find myself listening to the most are conversational and they have this element of authenticity and I'm joining them because of the the personality or the educational opportunity or the humor uh, more so than the production value. I mean, I still love a great story and you know, serial and this American life. Those podcasts are, are incredible, but there's one that I, it's probably my most played podcast. It's uh, Doug Benson's podcast called Doug loves movies. And it's, okay. it's a, a, a comedy show that he, it started out I don't know what came first, the show or the podcast, but it's the show is the podcast and the podcast is a show. And he gets a couple of comedian friends together and they play games centered around around films. And there's a ah, huge okay. community to it. People show up and they wear shirts and bring signs. And it's just really silly. It's fun. The production value is nothing special, but it's one that I keep coming back to because it, I learn something, but I never feel like I'm learning. And I love that dynamic to it. Yeah, it doesn't seem like you need to put. Well, I mean, you definitely need to consider content across different channels and and stuff like that. But it's almost like you don't need to make content polished as such. I, I see a lot of content Gary V puts out. I don't know if you've heard of Gary V uh, Vaynerchuk, and he puts out content like a ridiculous amount, like mm -hmm. five things maybe a day on social, and they're not really polished. They're kind of they're kind of a bit raw. Um, not so clean around the edges you know things aren't really centered things that an agency would definitely be considering and um i think it's having that 
that quick turnaround of work and being a and having no sort of well, I think there is an agency there, but he obviously has the final sign-off, but not having that internal opinion and not having to go through different people and such. And it just makes uh, creating a, a business easier, I guess, if, you, if you've got that much more control sure. at the tip of your fingers. Well, again, look, yeah. at, look at something like Twitch. I mean, most of the top streams are not polished at all. If you look through... I, I, am just i'm kind of studying twitch right now i'm not i i love to play games i was never into the world of online games so my ideal game is something like mario where you're either a platforming yes. you have like this storytelling level design beauty but i never got into like the the warcraft thing or starcraft thing never really got into the the call of duty thing and that's a lot of what's popular on twitch but what's interesting is there's also just the let's chat channels or the channels where it's somebody cooking or learning yeah. like a song on piano and the production value, the de- like just being honest, the design is the worst. I mean, the, the chat scrolls way too fast for you to read. And sometimes they just scream and the microphone's constantly peaking, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people, not just watching it, but engaging with it. That's what yeah, every yeah. brand wishes they had. And I don't think it's what any brand would actually make because they would be too scared to do that. So that's what I'm trying to study and figure out. And not on behalf of Airbnb, just uh, me, you know, just trying yeah, to yeah, understand what that is so that I can, again, put myself in that mindset of what's what's next and how can we, you know, think about using something like that. Yeah, I, I really like Twitch. Twitch is an interesting one. I, I went through a stage a while back where I, I was watching it. I find it easier to watch games than play games, but if I am playing it, I'm definitely a Nintendo fan. I'm, I'm one of the fans of like <laughs> Zelda, oh, the Ocarina of Time. Oh, man. We, uh, we could just talk about that. I mean, oh, that might be man, a separate easily. podcast. Easily. Yeah, mate. But uh, Mario 64 on the Nintendo. And I had Mario. Uh, was Odyssey the latest one on, Odyssey, on the Switch? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had that, and um, and then I ended up selling the Switch as soon as I played uh, Zelda and Mario. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm really interested in Switch, and it, it's it's one of those where like it, YouTube's recognised how big it's got, and it's it's jumped on the gaming scene, and I, I guess they're just trying to cover cover as much as of the spectrum as possible so youtube we're obviously trying to make things a lot more social like facebook now because they know there's opportunity in in that social experience and facebook obviously know there's an opportunity in video that's why they're creating facebook watch mm-hmm. so they've, they've all got eyes on each other they they know what they're doing and they're um they're just trying to broaden broaden their uh, services i guess as much as possible yeah, I, I, you know, we were saying like the opportunity feels like it's gone, but then you you do look at things like Instagram TV and like you said, the Facebook Watch stuff. There's a it's a just a different type of opportunity out there because that stuff did not exist when I was in the in the world of selling video. That was not even a thought, and I I don't know I'm 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 so far from removed from that now. So my day to day these days is quite a bit different and I just realized we hadn't we hadn't even really gotten to that. No, part I was gonna of get story. to that story, yeah, yeah. So Absolutely yeah, my story right. kinda ended uh about maybe two thirds of the way through. So I'll I'll finish that up. But yeah, yeah it, it took a it, little man. bit of a transition and, and I'm a little bit distanced from that video world now. So looking at what people are doing on those channels, it's inspiring and in a way it's like I don't know how to say this the right way. It's a little disheartening because, you know, I studied 
film and I shot film on, on 16 millimeter. And I feel like I had this really interesting type of experience and discipline that comes with that. And now, you know, I, I don't want to sound old or like a curmudgeon, like these days, the kids don't know. But, I know exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> but a lot of exactly the type of content, from. it breaks the rules that I had to study. And that's a good thing. I mean, I think, you know, rules are rules. They, they have a reason that they were made. There's a reason that they should evolve. I think one of the best film professors that I had, one of his key takeaways was like, you have to know the rules so that you know how to break the rules, right? And, and that's something that a lot of filmmakers like Tarantino will do all the time. Like there's this rule in film, the 180 degree rule, which is basically how you shoot a conversation to feel like it's two people looking at each other. And it's just this line that you draw and you have to keep the camera on one side of that 180 degree line between characters. Because if you break that, ah. all of a sudden it looks like instead of looking to the right and having the conversation, he's looking at somebody off to the left and it breaks the eye line and you feel really weird. I see. So it's this, it's this rule that unless you study film, you never notice it, but when it's broken, you feel it. And, you know, an amateur, like, student filmmaker who doesn't know that, that's one of the qualities of those films. You kind of watch it and you're like, oh, good job, Timmy, you made a movie. <laughs> but Tarantino, when he breaks that rule, he does it with intention because he knows the rule really well and he breaks it to create the sense of discomfort in the audience. And so, you know, there's that type of rule breaking that's, like kind of artistic and done with intention and higher purpose. And then there's this other kind of rule breaking that was really common when like Vine was around, which was like, I know the rules, but I just don't care because it's funny or like, I don't have the time to give a shit about the rules because I have your attention for about 11 seconds. And I think that that's what videos are optimizing for on a lot of these platforms. And that's kind of uh, like I said, I'm a little distance from that. So I, I don't have the best practices for that down. Um, no, I'm, I'm fully on board with what you're saying. And as a designer, I'm. Um, it, it is quite disheartening, isn't it? When you sort of, you, you've sort of been in the, you've been in the game for a while, and you've learned the things that you have organically. And there's there's a lot of platforms at the minute. There's one called Fiverr.com where you can ask someone for a logo, mm -hmm. and they'll do it for a Fiverr. And it's it's kind of like. Like you say, you don't want to sound old or anything, but it's kind of like, oh, you're, you're taking everything I've worked for sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's kind of um, it's kind of sad, but in, in a way, it's kind of, it's the way things are going. And I guess you've got to just, you've just got to uh, accept it and get on with it and uh, get used to it. <laughs> you got to work within it. You got to leverage it when it makes sense. And, um, you know, I, I've, I'm familiar with Fiverr. I think any logo that you got back from there would be passable for a certain type of person. And then there's these kind of like great minds that you work for. Like I mentioned, Troy, he would be able to look at that and just immediately know that there wasn't enough time, attention and passion behind it. Um, to round out the story about Troy, Troy now is the president. I think I don't know his exact title of Hearst publishing. So the biggest wow. publishing company, one, I should say one of, in the state yeah, yeah. and i think i mean they have a global presence now so he was someone who i i got to know really really well and now i mean i see him maybe once or twice a year but he's just a whole other category of human being now in this role wow. where he is just influencing and having his hands in in media of all forms he ran their digital arm for a little while and now he runs everything 
That's crazy. Yeah, weird. So if you ever need a so if you ever need a book published, you know who to go to. I think so. Book, magazine, anything. Yeah, I I know who to go to first. But I I mean, like I said, that would be like bringing him a Fiverr logo. He'd see my book and be like, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I had ex- I had a, an experience once with Fiverr. This guy came uh, message me and was like, Ah, oh, I want a logo. I was like, Yeah, okay. Um, what's your budget, sort of thing. And uh, he told me what he had, and I was I was kind of like, it's, it's not worth the time. I can't remember what I said to him, but I remember he posted something on Facebook a few weeks later, uh, and he credited Fiverr, and he said, oh, big thanks to, I'll say his name's Tom, big thanks to Tom for uh, giving us the heads up about Fiverr.com. This is the logo I've just, I've just had made for me. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was disgusting. And I'm not sure whether, like... Uh, because I'm I, I'm a designer and I'm familiar with the, seeing loads of different logos and paying proper attention to them, but it was dog shit. To the untrained eye, it probably doesn't look any different than it would do to to the average Joe, I guess. Sure. But it's um, it, yeah, like I say, it's disheartening. Sorry, I, I keep interrupting no, you. Hey, you. That's you, okay. You have... I feel like I'm also just telling my life story, which is I guess half of what this is about. But I think yeah, only a certain person will be on board. So um. Where was I? So I had started my own business. Uh, I was working with a business partner and things were going really well. We had clients like YouTube and Bayer who makes aspirin and like things large and small. Um, at the time, I I had married or I was engaged at the beginning and married um, who's now my wife, Jillian, the same woman that I met sophomore year of school. Wow, and, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, how different this entire story would have been if I hadn't met her. Honestly, it's it's uh, it's scary to think about that because she's just paramount for so many things. I mean, not just like personal happiness and my my life, my family, my son, but just like decisions and creative support and encouragement. And she was the person who, through a second cousin of hers, connected me to Troy. So like opportunity wow. and things like that. And so um, I have this tension at that time between um, wanting to start a family and the fears of being a freelancer. And, you know, we were in Oakland, we'd moved from San Francisco over to Oakland, we were renting, but we were seeing home prices just skyrocket. So in in 2012, a home in Oakland would be about $300,000. Right. I'm trying to do the currency translation for you and i can't because i don't know what you're at right now <laughs> the thing, things go I. up and down um no no but so it, it was a lot of money it was about a hundred thousand or let me 20 percent more than the same house would have been where i grew up in pennsylvania um but it wasn't it wasn't so much money that you know you'd have to eat ramen noodles all the time and so yeah, we, knew yeah. we wanted to buy a home and just stop paying rent and you know be able to paint the walls and do stuff like that but the thought of a mortgage and uh, a mortgage and starting a family on freelance income was terrifying because some months I would make a lot of money and some months and for some stretches I wouldn't make any money. And, you know, when you're renting, you are not only paying less, but you kind of have a little bit of a, of a safety net where like you could miss a month of rent and not like yeah. have a bank knocking on your door. Uh, yeah. and so, especially with a kid, you know, you can't miss like a month of diapers that doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> and so I, unless you got plenty, unless you got plenty of towels, <laughs> towels, or you're really good at like recognizing it and running to the toilet. Um, <laughs> yeah. and so I just kind of casually started 
looking on LinkedIn and opening myself up to conversations about roles. And uh, I felt really conflicted because my business partner was one of my best friends. And um, it was hard to, to look at how that relationship would change. But it was, you know, there was a bigger picture in mind here. And uh, Airbnb was a company that I'd always looked up to. And design-wise, I just thought the work that they were creating, uh, both graphically and then design, like product on the product side was incredible. Uh, they produced amazing films, their sense of photography, their graphic design, their perspective on the industry, their mission. And um, another friend of mine from from Say, uh, his name is Alex Schleifer. He was my manager at, at Say for a little bit. He was at an agency that Say Media acquired during my time there, had just become the VP of all design at Airbnb. And so again, these weird connections, um, <laughs> I, I saw this post for a presentation designer. Um, and it was the first thing that I'd seen cause they were hiring a lot of engineers, uh, and a lot of recruiters. And I am neither an engineer nor a recruiter. Although I thought maybe I could be a recruiter if I needed to. Um, this post was the first one and I would say about 50% of the requirements I met really well and 50% I just. <laughs> were not part of my experience. I yeah. I had used Keynote and I'd made presentations at Apple um, and then, you know, spent the bulk of my career at that time doing film. And when I was freelancing, I would make pitch decks. So I kind of knew my way around Keynote, but I didn't have any professional experience like with these really gigantic screen keynotes aside from the, the one I made for Johnny Ive. And believe me, that was in my interview deck that I gave at Airbnb. <laughs> the pretty much the exact story that I told you, I told them. Nice. Uh, and Sold. They, they, uh, they were really looking for a storyteller. And I think that's what that their posting really missed was like the presentation design, the actual like keynote, you know, slide design and animations, that's really easy. Anybody can learn that. Apple's designed a really great program, but it's what goes on the slides, how it interacts with what a speaker says. I mean, you're both making a film and a live theatrical production at the same time. And so you're, you have to really have this ability to understand an audience, understand brand messaging, understand uh, how to create tension and resolution and narrative arcs and I really sold them on that. And I was like, whatever nice. I don't know in keynote, I will learn and I'll be very fast. And so they took a chance. And um, I joined Airbnb in 2015, uh, four years ago. There was about a thousand people and a, a few small offices. Now we're 6,000 and some people. We have offices wow. all over. I don't know the exact number. I think there's 20 offices. It's huge everywhere. And um, my job started as just a, a kind of hodgepodge team. We have an internal art department here. The art department is made up of illustrators, animators, uh, photographers, and these are people that do a lot of the the media that you see both in our product and in print out in the real world. We still partner with big agencies, bigger agencies for like global productions or for a gigantic campaign, but the art department is kind of an in-house agency. Um, cool. And slowly my time on the art department uh, just evolved to have a bigger and bigger impact. And my team, um, which was just one other person and myself, moved into the product org just so that we could be closer to the way that the product was evolving. And I found myself working with Brian Chesky, who's our CEO, 
um, on the regular. And so being close to him and, and kind of able to tap into what he was working on next became just paramount to my success in my role. Uh, and so rather than doing, we were doing board meetings and investor decks and these big all hands presentations, but we started to do these really fun, I call them secret projects because Brian would get really excited about something and then he would task us with just exploring them. And this was in any medium that we could. Sometimes I would make films. Sometimes we would make a keynote that we like exported as a GIF, you know, just kind of hacking whatever we could to make a proof of concept. And one that I can share with you was for Airbnb experiences, which now is something that's real and on the platform. But back then it was this idea of like, if we did more than a home, what could that look like? What does good travel look like? What does bad travel look like? And so we just kind of did a little sprint. And this was was me and uh, my my coworker. His name's Lee J. Incredibly talented uh, visual designer and animator. And you know Brian would always have kind of pockets of other people working on the same things, and he would never tell them. And so he'd have these like four or five different perspectives come together. So I'm in no way taking credit for the product, but we were kind of one little work stream that became kind of paramount to what ended up launching a year and a half or so later. And so our team has this really cool opportunity to work on these little mini projects, which is a design exercise in the biggest sense of the word, not just design like what you see, but how you experience it, how it fits into the business, how it's a manifestation of the brand and the mission, um, and how it's designed to foster belonging and trust between strangers, which is the biggest goal at Airbnb. And then when it actually launches, I'm also the guy that's making (laughs) the keynote and and the, the... you say slide deck, but that thing ends up being, you know, there's film and animation and uh, a lot of just different components that are kind of woven together to um, create, like I, I describe it as more of a theatrical show. Um, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, I am responsible for that as like 50, 60% of my job are those big launches and kind of these big, Anytime there's a leader and there's a screen behind them, it goes through our team. And then the rest of my job is kind of exploring the the future of what our offering could look like. And so a little peek behind the curtain, you know, we started out as a homes business. We were just a, a business where you could stay in someone else's couch or house. And our goal is to really think about how do we fit into the entire travel journey? So how do we figure, how do we help people feel belonging when they walk out the door? And that was where experiences came from. So how can you really connect and do what a local might do or have an experience that's not just riding on the big bus? You know, you're not going to, you're not going to really explore London in a, in a powerful, meaningful, transformational way on the second story of that bus, right? You want to get into a neighborhood and, and explore like a, a local artist scene or follow a craft beer scene. Um, yeah. And now we're thinking beyond that, you know, how do you get there? What's that like? What is, what would the flight experience be like if, if you were um, on an Airbnb plane, you know, what would that look like? What would, um, what would have inspired you to travel in the first place? How do you choose where you're going to go? And it's not just like an Airbnb travel guide. It's, it's bigger than that. And so, our team has these little pops of fun exploring each one of those areas on a trip. I mean, I've been a I've been a fan of Airbnb for, for years now, and um, it it's been it's been awesome to see it sort of grow and evolve as a brand. Uh, I remember seeing a, 
a picture of the the old office and there was around about eight or nine guys in there and they had that picture next to the 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 main H- hq mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> that they've got at the minute and it's just insane uh, really to see how how quickly it's blown up as well yeah i mean i'm, I'm a massive fan and I, i've seen a ted talk with uh is it joe uh gibia gibia yeah so he's a co-founder of airbnb as well yeah uh, i think it was called how airbnb designs for trust which i'm guessing you were behind as well yes yeah that was um yeah. wow that was about a year in to my time here and again go- going from somebody who had never really made a presentation to partnering with one of the co-founders to design a ted talk was just a, a very insane experience um <laughs> the challenge with that ted talk was that it was given by Joe and not by Joe on behalf of Airbnb. So Ted uh, wanted to hear from him and his perspective as just an individual, as a designer, as a leader, but not necessarily, you know, Joe speaking as his role. I think at the time he was CPO. Um, he he kind of heads now this like deep future division of Airbnb, uh, but they didn't want him speaking on behalf of the brand, and so we were challenged by that because you know we have this beautiful design aesthetic and a set of fonts and colors and an array of photography at our disposal but we had to make this feel a little bit more personal and bring the fidelity down a bit and that was a it was an interesting challenge um that was just me and joe in uh, a couple of different airbnbs in vancouver building that talk over about two weeks and rehearsing it he's he's a really interesting infinitely creative guy who likes to explore a lot of iterations. So some, if you know, you've probably experienced clients like this who want to have about 20 different versions of something to decide that the first one was the best one. (laughs) And so we did that a lot with that talk and it was, it had its moments of being really, you know, incredibly rewarding and and a little bit painful at times, but we got to be really close and, and I'm super thankful for you know, that time. And I look at that now and I, I think it's a really funny talk. It also has these, all the elements that as I've done this for four years now, I have kind of a few things that are like my, I don't want to say my signature, but that I try to weave into all my talks. And yeah, yeah, one is really like, it's not audience participation, but it's, it's like active participation and I'm gonna. Are you are you about are you about to tell us that uh, you were responsible for everyone getting out of their phones? <laughs> that was a dynamic that I was pushing very very hard for. So like, yeah, you know, I and this goes back to film, a hundred percent back to documentary film, where you can watch a documentary by someone like Michael Moore, for example, who puts his mark on the film with his own voice and his own editing style. And really he makes great movies, but he kind of tells you how to feel. And this also goes back to our conversation that we had about media and news and politics. You don't watch a Michael Moore film and have any question on the, on the issue you kind of watch and you know how to feel about it. Um, Versus you can watch another documentary and something that's a little bit more restrained with the voiceover, something that explores all sides of of a subject of a topic and leaves you having to put those pieces together on your own and it's the difference between active and passive watching or participation and i always think that when you come to your own conclusion it's a little more powerful um 
and you know, a TED talk is 10 minutes, so you can't really build that dynamic up. But the idea was, how do we get people to feel vulnerability? Because when you welcome a guest into your house and you're not there, you're, you're the first time you do that, you feel very vulnerable. It's like, there's all my stuff. There's my underwear drawer. There's like my, there's my stash. There's everything. And you know, you might hide it or lock it or do whatever, but it still has this feeling. So how, as a company, do we design around that? And to give people a sense of that feeling, we thought, what's something personal and vulnerable that they have on them? And obviously right away it was their phone. So it was like, unlock your phone. That's just like you're unlocking your front door. It was like this perfect analogy. Now hand your phone to the person to your left. And all of a sudden, like all of the air went out of that room. It was so cool to experience because people instantly got it. And they knew like, wow, some people found it really liberating and others were terrified. And that's exactly the type of emotion and feeling that Airbnb was up against when they were trying to do what they did back then. And so that's become like, I I always try and weave something like that into the experiences that I design because I don't want my audiences just sitting there soaking everything up and not feeling everything. And you know, being told how to feel for something. I want them to arrive at that conclusion and have it be an experience that's more than just looking at a screen or listening. I want it to be active. And that was a really a fun way to to show that. I'm definitely going to be looking out for that from now on. (laughs) It's going to happen. But I mean, it was a great talk and uh, I loved it. And there definitely was a turning point in the talk when people started getting out their phones where it felt as though the atmosphere changed mm-hmm. from that moment on till the till the end it felt like it, it felt like a different talk but i mean yeah I'm, I'm a massive fan of uh the journey the backstory is is super super interesting so it was joe he he was he wanted to go to a design event and he didn't have enough money so he wanted to bring people into his home so he can afford it charge him 20 dollars to sit on the floor yep. on a on a blow up bed yep and um, and I guess that's where the word air come from. Is that right? That's, so it's- yeah. So the the impetus was, you know, there was a design conference coming to town. All of the hotels were sold out. And Joe and, and Brian, uh, they had this apartment. Their roommate had just moved out. They were kind of struggling to make rent anyway. And as two designers, they were kind of clued into the conference. They put together this website. They said, come stay in our house, stay in our air beds. And it was originally called Airbed and Breakfast. And so that was a, a eventually shortened down because everybody was thinking, wait, we have to sleep on airbeds when we do this? <laughs> but Airbed and Breakfast was the original original name of things. And then it, the, the bed got cut out. So does Airbnb. But yeah, they, they hosted um, three guests at their home. And, you know, those first three guests are still a big part of our, of our culture today. We have portraits of them in our office the same way that Nike would have portraits of athletes in their office. They are the people that we're doing this for. And really the friendship that was born between them and, and the first host, which just happened to be Brian and Joe, the founders, is something that still happens on the platform when you get really lucky, right? I mean, I've stayed in Airbnbs that were forgettable, that were basically hotels that uh, you know, lacked personality. They lacked the presence of a, of a human being. And that, that's not bad. It was efficient. But I've stayed in Airbnbs where I'm still in touch with the host today, where 
their story, their passion, who they were, um, is something that just resonated very deeply. And that in the short time that I spent in their home, I was, was really changed. Um, I stayed at a cabin on the mountain between, um, Napa and Sonoma, two of the wine regions in, in the Bay area. I stayed at the cabin, uh, at the peak of that mountain called Mount Veter. And, uh, <laughs> this was actually the weekend before my first day at Airbnb. And this is super embarrassing. I had, I had a profile, but I'd never stayed somewhere on my own account. Uh-huh. I'd stayed with other people and my wife had an account that I'd never had stayed somewhere with my own booking. And, you know, there's a whole review and trust system. So I figured, yeah, well, they're yeah. going to look at me and see if I've stayed somewhere. So I booked this place and we're driving up this mountain and the directions say, when you see the green gate, make a left and pass through the row of trees and go around the pond and you'll see the cabin like at the end of the road. And we're in the middle of nowhere, like literally on a mountain that I think it might've even been a dirt road. And we see the gate and we make a left and we see the row of trees and we keep going and we see the pond. And then we see this big white tent, like almost an airplane hangar. And that wasn't mentioned on the listing and that wasn't in any of the pictures and behind the hangar is uh the cabin and it's beautiful and it looks just like the pictures and as we drive past it and we look at the tent and the windows are down it's a hot day kind of start to smell something in the air (laughs) and i look in and there's these gigantic beautiful bright green plants marijuana plants huge (laughs) grow up like 99 commercial style plants wow and i am like what is this who is this person where are we gonna get shot right now like what is happening (laughs) and you know the the legality at the time i don't remember exactly medical was definitely fine uh like recreational which is now okay in the states was not a thing and you just didn't know you know there were some people who were still drug dealers and had the whole air of like the gangster drug dealer vibe. And then there was also like the, the hippie medicinal drug dealer vibe. And we were not, we did not know what we were getting ourselves into. And then, and then the host came out and he was the most incredible story person that I've, that I've had a conversation with. He, um, I'm, I'm trying to, was he very chilled had a had had cheetos all over his mouth funny that you say that (laughs) he um so he used to work in the tech world and he had grown up having this condition where he would have seizures random Ah, random seizures and yeah uh on three or four separate occasions he would be on public transit and wake up in a hospital bed and it would be days later and you know he would just not have known what happened he would have had a seizure nearly died and luckily you know because there are still many good people in the world someone called the ambulance and got him to the hospital and he had never had a way to control this and they were getting worse and he you know was trying alternative forms of medicine and basically found this particular type of strain it's now gotten to be a lot more popular, rich in, uh, I don't know the term, CBD, which now is like in oh, drinks okay, and everything. Yeah. But at the time, it was kind of unheard of, very new to me. And this thing that he was growing, it had such a low THC level that it didn't really get you high in the traditional sense. But it had um, 
it had the impact for him of completely stopping the seizures. He hadn't had a seizure in years and years. And wow. he was making it not to smoke, but he also had in another facility this machine that would press it into a like an oil or a tincture, and he would sell that uh, to uh, a lot of children. I mean, not he would, but his company would provide yeah, yeah. that as a relief for people that were in the same that had the same um, affliction that he had. And so, it's really funny because as prominent as that was, and as crazy as that story is the thing i remember most about him was that he brought us these two blueberry pies that he made from blueberries that he grew he gave us a fruit basket and opened up the entire like plot of land to us to just go collect he had fruit trees everywhere and strawberries and blueberries he watched our dog the night that he went to dinner or that we went to dinner and said that she was welcome to stay there anytime for months at a time because he loved her so much. And he was a host in every single sense of the word that the whole like drug dealer fear weed farm thing. It was like the yeah. least interesting thing about him. And I could see why it didn't it wasn't on the listing. It wasn't because he was hiding it. It was because it didn't really matter at that point. And he it was, I was pretty lucky that that was my first real Airbnb experience because I've had some bad ones. <laughs> but that, <laughs> when you have one like that, I mean, I still talk to him. Uh, we still email regularly. There were a lot of That's fires awesome. that happened up there and was really checking up on him. And, you know, I, I've seen his business grow and the company is called Care by Design. They still, they're growing, at least in the States and providing that particular strain. And every now and then they'll show up in the news as like a, uh, the only thing that allowed this 12 year old girl to stop having crippling seizures. And like, wow. I am so thankful that there's people like that and that through Airbnb, you get to meet them. And, and I never would have otherwise, cause I would have turned That's... back if I was driving and I saw that I would have been <laughs> out of there. I might've snapped off would... a branch and then I would have left. I wonder at what point you would have just turned around after the white tent. <laughs> after the white tent. I don't even know if I would have made it after the the, the lake. It was it, it could have been terrifying. Man, yeah. I mean that that is a that is an awesome story. I think maybe that should be written down somewhere on a plaque on the in the office. <laughs> but um But uh, another funny story about missing opportunities. Are, how how familiar are are you in the world of bitcoin and cryptocurrency oh man i was in it i was in it in it how, about, how hard were you in it not not fully i didn't invest my life savings into it but about a year ago just before bitcoin went mainstream i put a hundred pound in and i managed to make a hundred pound off it <laughs> yeah so i, I put a hundred pound in i seen it go up i was like it's going it's going it's going and oh shit it's going down quickly pull out pull out yeah. pull out so I, I made about 100 pound and i've only recently within the last four weeks i put another 100 pound into litecoin oh, okay into into litecoin um and i've got coinbase on my phone mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm always checking uh pretty much every day how the market's doing i know nothing about you know, diagrams and peaks and troughs <laughs> and when to invest and stuff like that. What I basically do, I just look at how much is in my account. And if it goes up, then I know <laughs> cryptocurrency is doing well. And if it's going down, I know it's not doing very well. Litecoin doesn't be doing, seem to be doing that bad. What, have, you, um, have you had experience investing? Well, I don't know if you'd call this experience. I uh, say media days. So I guess I had to do the math here. 2011 friend of mine tells me about this thing called Bitcoin. 
you have to download Tor, which is this like IP proxy client. You have to put your money into this service called Dwala, which then transfers it to this platform called Mount Gox, which then gives you a, <laughs> a code that you burn onto a CD for your wallet. And he's like, this is going to be the thing. You can't do anything with the coins. At the time, there was like the Silk Road. So if you wanted to buy some like fun stuff, you could maybe use it for that. But he just thought yeah. it was going to be like this thing. When was this? Sorry, 2011? 2012. Uh, ah, okay. It might, it might have been 2011, 2012 cusp. I, I can't remember exactly. And so I had just gotten a salary and $500 was like, a, it was a lot. I mean, it still is a lot of money, but it was a lot of money for me. And I decided I'd put in 500 bucks. $500 got me 22 Bitcoins. Oh my God. I, I don't know. Uh, I, Shit I, I have to not look now. Um, it was a lot of Bitcoins. And at the time, it, I didn't know anything about it. And nobody, nobody did really. Um, yeah. And I remember I gave myself a timeline of, I think, six months just to see what was happening. And, you know, I, I mentioned we wanted to buy a house at that time. I wanted to go freelance at that time. There's a lot of financial pressure. And after my trial period, I lost about 200 bucks and I pulled out. So I lost money on Bitcoin back then. And if yeah. I had saved that, I'm just going to quickly. <laughs> I'm just gonna oh, man, don't do it to yourself. Here. 22 Bitcoin value let's see eighty nine thousand seven hundred and seventy dollars oh shit. and last last year that would have been a hell of a lot more i know, I know. well you, you know the thing is for me that was like a, a good lesson that came out of that which is why i say it wasn't really investing it was more of a life lesson it's like only invest what you can afford to lose yeah, exactly. I yeah. just couldn't afford to lose it back then, so I didn't invest it. And you know, had I lost it all and been out my five hundred, maybe that would have had a butterfly effect on everything else in my life. Had I kept it in and been able to 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 sell it at the peak, I might have bought a house and stayed freelance and never ended up where I'm at now. And you know, things. I'm I'm not really one of the people that's like everything happens for a reason. But I, I, I mean, you can't knock that. I mean, I don't think yeah. that everything happened for a reason. I think it's more like everything happens. Period. End of sentence. Everything happened. Yeah, yeah. Cool. It happened, and it is responsible in some very tiny way for where I am today. So yeah, I lost some money, but it taught me about things, and you know, here I am talking to you, and. It's, yeah, it's course, just man. interesting when you you keep saying like this would be a, such an interesting movie or you know I've never thought <laughs> about life my life like that every single transition and decision had been terrifying and I was full of so much anxiety between like should I do this or that should I leave this or should I stay there and you know it's this has been kind of therapeutic in a way to talk about it with somebody and hear that perspective yeah, yeah. because I look back and it's like I'm very lucky that it worked out this way. At the time, it doesn't feel like that, though. At the time, it feels terrifying, and it feels like you're taking a step backwards, and it feels like you're giving something up, or like with the Bitcoin, like you just lost something. But yeah, when you can reflect on it like this and talk and laugh and hear somebody find joy in it, it's a, it's a pretty incredible thing. So I'm, I'm really appreciative to have had this time and talk with you. Oh, man, no, no, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. 
Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, Elliot. I'm, I really do appreciate it. I know you've got a lot on. You're a busy guy. Hey, and I, I am just, like I said, so thankful for this opportunity and, and to be introduced to your show and to listen to the other folks that you talked to. It was kind of intimidating because they're like, they're like quoting people and they just had like a uh, deep experience. And I was like, Are, is this really, uh, is this something I'm capable of even doing? And, and I am just so absolutely, man. thankful absolutely. To, to have the chance. No, mate, thank you. It, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. It, it really has. We'll do it again. And then, um, yeah, I'll keep in touch on LinkedIn. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. I know it's kind of late for you. So your weekend's about to start and I hope you have a great weekend as well.